Welcome to the Christmas episode of the New Testament Review, where every episode, including the Christmas episode, we discuss influential works of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson. And this week, on the Christmas episode, we're going to be discussing The Birth of the Messiah by Raymond Brown. So we're actually not going to be able to discuss the entire book this week. Ian and I just got done turning in our final grades for the semester. Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah, is a commentary on the infancy narratives in both Matthew and Luke. Uh, It's extremely exhaustive. It's very careful. It's a great book. You should totally check it out. It's a 560-some page commentary on four pages of Mm -hmm. the New Testament. So today we're going to be focusing on, obviously, everyone's favorite part of the infancy narratives, the most exciting paragraphs in the New Testament. The part you act out in the children's pageants. The genealogies. (laughs) Seriously, though, the genealogies have hidden treasures. And if you haven't read through them carefully, I'm willing to bet you've missed some pretty fascinating stuff in each genealogy, as well as what it means or what it looks like to have two very, very different genealogies for the same person in the New Testament. So we're going to go through some of these critical issues, spending most of our time on Matthew, but we'll touch on Luke as well. So the thing that we want to start with is what is a genealogy? Why do two books of the New Testament uh, contain a genealogy of Jesus and explain who his family is? Well, where we're starting is that genealogies do something. That These aren't just records of who's related to who and who's whose dad. They're also really intended to do something. There's a theological project there. Genealogies are more than history. They are doing something that's part of an author's narrative or literary agenda. And also, as we're going to see, they're often also less than history. Um, one really important function that genealogies have in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, is that they authenticate people for, for an office. There's a genealogy in Ezra 2, for example, which goes through the ancestral line of the high priest to show that this person is the person who is appropriate to take on this position, that they've got the right family credentials and they are descended from the right folks to be able to do this. Additionally, Genealogies, as in Genesis 10, Brown points out, can show that a person or an important figure's ancestors exemplified certain character traits or attributes that are significant or foreshadow something about the character we're interested in. Brown points to Genesis 10, where the ancestors of different people groups exemplify virtues or vices that are characteristic or stereotypical of later figures that the author is concerned with discussing. So if genealogies are intended to authenticate a person for a specific purpose or mission, what does Matthew think he is authenticating Jesus for? What what credibility does he give Jesus in his genealogy? Well, you'll notice that one of the first things that Matthew calls Jesus in his genealogy is the son of David. Here's one one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is a huge theme in Matthew, that Jesus is called son of David a lot, much more than he is in Mark. And this title is, a, is an allusion to his, his kingship and the fact that he is the Messiah, and specifically he's the Messiah of Israel. So this genealogy, which traces Jesus' descent through David, it legitimizes Jesus as the Messianic king, as the Davidic king. The other possibility Brown raises is that the genealogy may be trying to bring out certain attributes or characteristics that are important for Jesus' family. And one of the things that's really striking about Matthew's genealogy is the way it features four women. Genealogies in the ancient world almost never had women in them. If you look at the genealogies in Genesis, the wives and mothers are not named. They're silent. 
Matthew's got four of them in his genealogy, which makes this very unusual. So this might be a place to look for certain characteristics that the author of Matthew thinks are important. And throughout the history of Christian interpretation, there have been a number of different suggestions about why these four women are featured and what this might tell us about Jesus's family or Jesus as a person or perhaps the person of Mary or Joseph. The four women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba, although not named. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah, who had two children by him, apparently by deception in Genesis 38. Rahab was the sex worker who smuggled the Israelite spies out of Jericho. Ruth is the Moabite woman who came with Naomi back to Bethlehem and married Boaz. And Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, famously was the mother of Solomon by David. David had her husband killed and took her as his wife. So throughout the history of Christian interpretation, people have put forward different suggestions about why these four women are included. And the earliest and perhaps most famous of these is Jerome. Jerome says that all four women are famous sinners. And this shows that Jesus is coming to save sinful people. So this one uh, really cheeses me off because I still have students who say this and I think people don't think very critically about it. Uh, For one thing, it's a very hard case to make that the women are sinners as opposed to the men in the genealogy. Abraham sold his wife to two kings and uh, David killed a guy and you know, Solomon got all, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's hard to make a distinction that the women are somehow sinners and the men are not. And secondly, the four women in the genealogy aren't really clearly recognizable as, as sinners. Um, it's not at all clear whether or not Bathsheba was an agent in her remarriage to David or whether or not this happened basically without her consent. Ruth does nothing wrong in her entire narrative at all. She is a pillar of patience and kindness and uh, self-sacrifice for Naomi. Rahab saves two people's lives and arguably the entire nation of Israel and gets saved for it and in rabbinic legend marries Joshua. And the story of Tamar ends with Judah saying that she is more righteous than he is because her tricks uh, shamed him into revealing that he, he had not done right by her. So it's actually really hard to make a case that any of these women are recognizable as sinners at all. Furthermore, Brown points out that all four of these figures in what we can tell of contemporary Jewish piety and then later rabbinic literature, are remembered as heroes, not as culpable people. Another really influential perspective uh, was advanced by Luther and says that all four women are foreigners. In favor of this view, Bathsheba is not named because we don't know anything about her explicitly from the biblical narrative, but she's called wife of Uriah the Hittite. So, so the author seems to be drawing attention to the fact that she may be a foreigner. Um, and these other three probably are, you know, they come from different lands, different countries. The problem is it's not quite clear how this would fit with Matthew's agenda. It's really important for Matthew that Jesus is a good Jew descended from Jews. He is a true Israelite, and he is a fulfillment of Jewish scripture. This isn't analogous with the Magi coming in, that is, the Gentiles coming in to worship God. I don't understand, and neither does Brown, how women in Jesus's history being foreigners is somehow significant for Matthew's portrayal of Jesus. Yeah, it, it, I think it's especially untenable if we think about these women as sort of types of Mary. And uh, Mary is not a foreigner. Um, at least there's no indication in the text she is. And if we, if we see these women as being roughly analogous to Mary in some way, there's a pretty significant type breakdown there. Brown's favorite proposal is that these are irregular unions featuring instrumental women who take initiative or agency 
in their own life. This one might be a little bit better. I mean, there is something to be said about these being irregular, and there is something to be said about these being really important women. The question of agency is tricky. Um, for Bathsheba, he draws attention to Bathsheba advocating on behalf of Solomon, but then we're getting quite a ways away from the narrative everyone knows about the wife of Uriah, which she's called in Matthew's genealogy. The, the other issue I have with this label is that saying that they are influential women who took an important part in God's plan is probably the vaguest way we can describe these women. They are famous Old Testament figures. They are people who the Jewish readers of Matthew would have known about. And that makes them not really distinctive as much as it makes them a lot like everyone else in the genealogy. There probably is something to the whole irregular union idea that you know a lot of these are second marriages or unlikely marriages, or in the case of Tamar, not really a marriage at all. And Matthew is showing knowledge of the fact that Jesus's origins were known to be somewhat irregular. It is drawing attention to the fact that this is not the first time this has happened in Jewish history. Jane Sheberg wrote a book called The Illegitimacy of Jesus, which we talked about covering today. But we kind of wanted this episode to be lighter and fluffy. Yeah, that, so that's the women. Uh, this is a really characteristic feature of Matthew's genealogy. It's not in Luke's genealogy. This is, uh, this is a Matean thing. Matthew ends his genealogy with a curious little paragraph. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. What is going on here? Let's do some math. <laughs> yeah. The first thing to attend to is how clearly artificial this construction is. So there's a number of different ways to illustrate this. Simply internally, from Abraham to David is 750 years, whereas from David to the exile is 400 years. That is, in these two periods that Matthew both says are 14 generations exactly, one is twice the length of another. One is almost 400 years longer than another. So on internal grounds, this doesn't really make sense. We also see that this is probably less than historical. When we compare Matthew to the Old Testament, there's a genealogy in 2 Kings that contains a lot of the same names as, as Matthew's. Matthew has in verse 8 that Joram begat Uzziah. The Old Testament has that Joram begat Ahaziah, who begat Jehoash, who begat Uzziah. So you've got four generations instead of two. Right, so Matthew is omitting people to get to this number of 14. Likewise, in Matthew's verse 11, he seems to have confused Jeconiah with Jehoiakim, maybe occasioned by the way they're spelled in the Greek, in the Greek Septuagint. Sometimes these both names are spelled the same way. All the same, uh, we have here another elision of a number of generations to get to the number 14. Luke doesn't have the 14, 14, 14 scheme either because that's not enough generations. Uh, Luke actually has 56 names in his genealogy to Matthew's 41. That is in the part of the genealogy that Luke yeah. and Matthew overlap for. Um, Luke then goes on and traces it back from Abraham to Adam, where there's a bunch of other names. But in just the part where they overlap in the exact same time period, Luke has 15 generations more than Matthew does. So Matthew's really invested in this 14-14-14 structure. So why? What is so special about 14? Why does Matthew draw attention to the fact that we keep showing up this 14 number in between important events in Israel's history? One answer is numerology. There's this trick in Judaic literature called gematria. And what gematria is, is assigning a number to the letters of somebody's name and adding them up. Let's say if we were doing this in English, A would be 1, B would be 2, C would be 3. 
in Gematria, David's number is 14. So we've talked about how Matthew's really invested in the whole son of David idea. If the number that keeps showing up is 14, Matthew seems to think of this as a sign of David. Right. So again, Matthew is reasserting Jesus's Davidic descent through an exegetical method, which is prominent and accepted um, in ancient Jewish literature, that is Gematria. This isn't the only place that Gematria shows up in the New Testament. Oh, yeah. Where else do we find it? The number of the beast, which you can hear about in our A.Y. Collins episode. 666 is probably Nero in the same way that 14 is probably David. So we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and a lot of you probably know, that Matthew is not the only genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, Luke's got his own. So how are these two different? Uh, The first and most obvious difference is that Luke and Matthew go in different orders. Uh, Matthew's order is descending. He starts with Abraham and goes down the list. And Luke's is the other way. It's ascending. He starts with Jesus and goes up the list. Luke also goes a lot further than Matthew does. Luke goes all the way up to Adam. Matthew just goes from Abraham to Jesus. Not only to Adam, but to God. Adam, son of God. Which is arguably important for Luke theologically. Luke places the genealogy in chapter 3, just before the baptism, where the heavens open and God proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God. So perhaps the theological agenda here is shifting somewhat. Uh, For Matthew, it's really important to emphasize that Jesus is the Son of David, Son of Abraham. And for Luke, perhaps a Pauline Christian, Brown says, Jesus is the Son of God and connected to the entire human race by being, of course, a descendant of Adam. There's a much more universal image happening in Luke's genealogy than there is in Matthew, where Abraham is the father of Israel. Just to touch on a few pedantic points before we get back to the theological meat, in the pre-Monarchian period, there are very few differences between Matthew and Luke. Matthew has Aram, whereas Luke gives Arni and Admin in one place, so there's a name substitution. But it's a totally different story when you get to the Monarchian and post-Monarchian period. In the Monarchian period, David's descent is traced not through Solomon, but through Nathan in Luke. Um, Brown suggests this may be because Solomon was somewhat scandalous. His later life was famously somewhat sordid. Matthew and Luke both have Jesus descended from David, but they have him descended from David through different ancestors. And then in the post-Monarchian period... It's just a total soup bowl. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They differ Um, tremendously. And a really specific way to see where these diverge is, who is Jesus' grandpa? In Matthew, it's Jacob, who begets Joseph. In Luke, it's Eli. So you only have to look two generations up from Jesus to see that the lists are quite different. The name of Jesus' grandfather changes from both lists. So why do we have different lists between between David and Jesus. Okay, story time. It's Christmas, Ian's in high school, and listening to Adventures in Odyssey, a Christian radio show put out by Focus on the Family. And they did a whole episode which concluded with the revelation that there is no contradiction between the two genealogies because one is Mary's genealogy and one is Joseph's genealogy. Adventures in Odyssey, the people who are making this are not trying to willfully deceive their audiences. These are not malicious people. This rather exemplifies the tremendous power of selective skepticism and confirmation bias. If you read the text of Matthew and Luke, and we're going to do that here, you'll see that they explicitly state that both are the genealogies of Joseph. There is no evidence that either is the genealogy of Mary. So I'm going to read Matthew here, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. 
And Luke, working the other way, begins with he, being Jesus, was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, who was the son of Eli, who was the son of Mathot, who was the son of Levi. There is no translation difficulty here. There is no textual variant. Both make it clear that they are presenting the genealogies of Joseph. Yeah, We do have two different genealogies of the same person. This is just what we have between Matthew and Luke. Another potential explanation for these two different genealogies is what's called a Leverite marriage. So a Leverite marriage is a thing you can read about in the Old Testament, where if a woman was married to a man and the man died before he had had a child, the woman would marry the his brother in order to produce heirs of his name. So this explanation goes back to Eusebius, who says that Julius Africanus uh, knew this explanation. Joseph was himself the product of a Leverite marriage, and that's why we have two different names. So Joseph's legal father, this was the man that Joseph's mom was married to, he died, and then Joseph's mom remarried his brother, And that second brother is the one who was actually the father of Joseph. And one traces through Joseph's legal father and the other traces through his biological father. Now, this would be a convenient way of explaining away the problems in the post-monarchian period. Unfortunately, and Brown dedicates an entire appendix to this, this solution doesn't work for a number of reasons. We're not going to go through all of this, but here's a couple of reasons. Between Matthew and Luke, the name for the father of Jacob and Eli, who on this theory are supposed to be brothers, are different. In Matthew, it's Matan, and in Luke, it's Matat. Now, maybe it's possible that these are two different ways of spelling the same name. Even if you assume that's correct, the name of this person, Matan slash Matat, his parents, again, are two totally different names, which can't be the same thing. So are we supposed to imagine that there's another Leverite marriage? That there's a succession of Leverite marriages going all the way back to the Babylonian exile? Additionally, and more problematically, is the idea that anyone would list his natural father as opposed to his legal father in a genealogy. The whole point of the Leverite marriage is to create an heir for the legal father. It would have been illegitimate to list the natural father in a genealogy. So even if Leverite marriages were still a practice in the first century, and even if we could somehow explain away the difference in great-grandfathers and the difference in great-great-grandfathers, this isn't how genealogies are supposed to work. The genealogies don't match in a way that's not just reducible to this one guy, his grandfather and, and his ancestors. There's actually a much bigger issue happening here in that Luke has way more generations, and the descendant of David who is named is different, that there's differences in the monarchical tradition. The genealogies are just different. Yep. The bigger picture, as we've mentioned, is that these genealogies differ throughout. They differ in each period, they differ in length, and they differ from our Old Testament sources. So maybe, diving into these, looking for an accurate historical record of the genealogy of Jesus is doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So we don't really know why the why these genealogies are different from a historical perspective. We do know that why they're different from a theological perspective, that Matthew and Luke are just trying to accomplish really different things theologically, and we see this in their genealogies. This is what the main idea of the genealogies is. In the spirit of Christmas, let's close with a quote from Raymond Brown, himself a Roman Catholic priest. The message about Jesus, son of Joseph, is not that factually he is also grandson of either Jacob, Matthew, or of Eli, Luke, but that theologically he is son of David, son of Abraham, according to Matthew, and according to Luke, son of God. 
These genealogies are setting up the narrative for the entire gospel. Matthew is portraying Jesus as the Davidic Messiah and the true heir of Abraham, and Luke is setting up Jesus as the universal savior and the son of God. So when you're reading the infancy narratives for Christmas, maybe don't stop with the infancy narratives. Maybe read the rest of Matthew and Luke. And I think you'll see that these are very different books and very different reflections on who Jesus is. And when you think of it that way, it's really not that surprising the genealogies are different after all. Thanks for joining us for the Christmas episode. Uh, As this is going out, I'm in Minnesota and Laura's in Indiana. Sorry about that. (laughs) Hey, come on. It's pretty really nice there. And we'll be back with you in uh, January at some point. A very Merry Christmas to all of our Christmas celebrating listeners. And we hope to hear from you guys soon as we move into the next semester.